Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone. Rashad Nelms has served in leadership and management positions for the United Nations World Food Program for 18 years and in more than 21 countries. These have ranged from managing offices that provided food assistance on the Zambia borders of Malawi and Angola, respectively, to leading WFP's Corporate Ambassadors Program, which leverages celebrities and influencers to support WFHP, I'm sorry, WFP's fundraising, to managing a multinational team in a refugee camp on the Bangladesh-Myanmar border. As an international executive, Rashad helps clients lead and manage confidently, operate more efficiently and effectively increase cost savings and strengthen staff recruitment and retention. As a strategic advisor in the UN, he has worked with Fortune 500 senior executives, celebrities and international philanthropic institutions as part of his work. He is also a frequent lecturer and guest speaker at higher education institutions across the country. On emotional intelligence, these are some of the topics, emotional intelligence, leadership, collaboration, management, and more. He is currently on sabbatical from the World Food Program and and serves as an executive in residence with Indiana University. In this role, he helps diversify the university's faculty and staff hiring and helps prepare graduate and undergraduate students for the global workforce. He joins us now to discuss his exciting involvement with the United Nations. Rashad, welcome to Bring It On. Yeah, absolutely welcome, Rashad. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you. That was that was uh that was a pretty cool introduction. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. We, you know, we could do we could do some good every now and then. <laughs> uh and, and we and we may take some liberties with Rashad tonight because uh we know his pedigree, and we know that he comes from fine stock. Uh, he is the son of uh, Dr. Charlie and Dr. Janetta Nelms. Uh, they both reside here in Bloomington, and um, uh, as they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, but I'd like to go ahead and get started. Um, Rashad, we, Liz and I know you. Uh, we, we've known you for a number of years, even when, when you were a lot younger. But provide for us a brief introduction of yourself and, and how you got involved with your foreign diplomatic service with the U.N., well, first of all, Clarence, Liz, I want to thank you uh, for the opportunity to, to come and be with you today and uh, the opportunity to, to speak about my own experiences and hopefully to encourage uh, African-Americans and Latinos and other minorities uh, here in the States to, to engage or to participate in, in global affairs. Um, I was born in Gary, Indiana and uh, moved around a lot. That's right, GI. And, um, and so moved from Gary to Dayton, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio to Richmond, Indiana, where I spent a uh, pretty, pretty good formative part of my years. Uh, and then uh, we moved to Flint, Michigan, 
and I graduated from, from Flint Central and then went to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where I graduated with my degree in political science uh, and then decided to stay on and uh, earn my uh, JD from the University of Michigan Law School. And, and so how I got into the UN was I knew I didn't want to practice. And so Clarence and Liz, I knew probably within that first semester that I never wanted to practice, right? Um, and the motivation, what motivated me to even go to law school was that I wanted to be a civil rights attorney for the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And as you know, uh, individuals like Thurgood Marshall played a key role, right, in, in advancing the socioeconomic and political rights of African-Americans. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, but I knew early on in that first year that I didn't want to. Having said that, I did want to use a degree to effectuate as much good as possible. And so that ultimately led me through different, uh, different networks and, and, and speaking with individuals to United Nations World Food Program. And so the person who took a chance on me uh, is the former IU trustee, uh, as well as IU graduate, Jim Morris. And so Jim was the uh, executive director uh, at the time that I graduated from law school. And, and so I joined back in October of 2004 as a policy officer. Uh, for the World Food Program. And then subsequently, you know, for the past 18 years, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, have served in a variety of leadership and management functions and, and, and worked in more than 21 countries. So it's been a pretty fascinating experience. Wow, that's, okay. uh, that is fascinating. Now, Liz, did you have a follow-up to that? Well, you know, did you develop an interest as a child hmm. in any of this? And, and then what gave you that interest if you developed that interest as a child? I did have it as a child, right? Not necessarily in the United Nations, but in, in learning about foreign cultures and wanting to travel, right? My first experience, and I was very fortunate, right? I need to be very clear. I was very blessed. I continue to be very blessed and very fortunate to have parents to, who possess the access to resources as well as opportunities that have afforded me the chance to travel abroad. And so my first trip was, was to the former Soviet Union in 1980, I want to say 1989, right? So I was more, less than maybe 10, maybe it's like 10 years old, 11 years old at best. And, you know, I went as part of a sister city exchange uh, with Richmond, Indiana and, and Serpukov, uh, Russia. And that was, I think, about 10 to 14 days of traveling around the country. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just opened my eyes. Right. And, okay. I was, and then I had the good fortune of when I was maybe uh, in junior high school or, or, or even in high school to travel with my godmother, Gloria Smith. Uh, she took me to Egypt. Right. Wow. Again, that just sparked this interest. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to have those experiences set, set, almost set the foundation. For those that are, can't afford uh, the blessings that you had to be able to travel, mm -hmm. what would you suggest uh, that they do uh, for children? Uh, would you suggest books or meeting foreign exchange students? How, for those that can't afford that, mm -hmm. what are your suggestions that they do? There are a couple of things, Liz. I would say the first one is, as you mentioned, reading up on, on just the, 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 the status of the world, right? And the, Obviously, I'm not going to suggest this to a four-year-old or five-year-old, but the parents can 
speak with them or share with them picture books, for instance, or they can share with them stories or narratives that they picked up from newspapers or from the internet, just to say, there's a whole other world out there, right? Mm -hmm. So here's something about South Sudan, or here's something about Bangladesh, here's something about DPRK, here's something about Mexico, right? That is a good foundation. Another example or another tool or another way that uh, the parents can help is to, uh, is to take them, if there's a local community college or a local, uh, local university such as Indiana University in Bloomington or Richmond or in, uh, in Albany, right? And, and have them to participate in lectures, in seminars, where they have the opportunity to meet foreign professors, where they have the opportunity to engage with foreign students, where they have the opportunity to you know, listen or see foreign films and musicals, right? Those little things are a solid foundation that can help strengthen and pique a child's interest. Okay, thank you. That's great ideas. Thank you, Rashad. Clarence? You know, uh, a, um, a lifelong dedication in foreign diplomatic service. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds fascinating. It sounds like um, something you see in a movie where you know, you're an international jet setter. You're out there uh, multilingual, um, appreciation of both the the culture of another nation, the dynamics and the subtleties of that nation. Whereas, you know, we look at people that struggle with our language but fail to remember that they know three or four different languages. But exactly. you know, just mm -hmm. just how someone's prepared to do this type of work. Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds all fascinating. And to sort of piggyback on something Liz said, were you drawn to this to this field out of this wider sense of purpose and a need to contribute to the world? You know, just just uh, uh, these these high aspirations, uh, or was this just oh hey an opportunity a job a career you know if so explain your motivations a little bit more in detail for why you're doing what you're doing. I've always believed that there is an opportunity for us to unite the world, and I think that probably came from you know MLK was one person right and, and the fact that he learned from Gandhi and the nonviolent nonviolence. Uh, pacifist resistance kind of techniques, right? I think I was really influenced though by, by someone like Malcolm X, who near the end of his life realized that in order for there to be uh, progress or significant progress, not just in the States, that had to take place also globally. And that had a powerful impact upon me because it got me to think about how similar as well as dissimilar we are with people in Zimbabwe, people in Zambia, people in, again, Pakistan, India, right? There are some similarities. And so the question then became, how do you leverage those similarities, right? Those commonalities in a way that you can create a consistent narrative that transcends these national boundaries, our cultural differences. That's what fascinated me and continues to fascinate me because we have a lot more in common than we have That's in, true. Uh, as opposed, right? And so there, the question really is, how do you build that? Right. How do you develop that? And and I'm always astounded by the forces that really want to hype the differences and keep us separated, keep us polarized, keep us suspicious of one another. Um, but but I want to dive into really the glaring problem in the room. Give us a good definition of hunger. I may miss a meal or two or three. I may go all day. For some unknown reason, but I, you know, I, 
I'm blessed and fortunate, as many are, to live in a country where you don't have to if you don't, mm-hmm. if you don't want to. But say for some reason I go a day without food. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm hungry. My definition of hungry. Mm-hmm. But in your work, give us a definition of what real hunger is. Okay. So the World Food Program, with whom I work, we have a sister agency called the Food Agriculture, Food and Agriculture Organization. Right? And so FAO, that's what we call it, they define hunger as an uncomfortable or painful physical sensation caused by insufficient consumption of dietary energy. And there's a window, there's a range, right? So it becomes chronic when a person doesn't consume a sufficient amount of calories or what would be dietary energy on a regular basis uh, that's necessary for a healthy life. Um, and so again, across that window, you might see chronic, chronic hunger. You might see, uh, things like, uh, acute malnutrition. And so it really varies, but at the end of the day, the hunger definition really comes down to that uncomfortable or, or painful uh, physical sensation caused by this insufficient consumption of, of dietary energy. And, and so okay. one last, one last follow-up if I can, mm-hmm. Liz. So yeah. image, images we see international images mm-hmm. of children, especially with bloated mm-hmm. bellies, mm-hmm. Uh, malnutrition, mm-hmm. and they may not remember the last time they had what we might consider a balanced meal. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're piecemeal probably, and that's my assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a type of hunger where after a while the pain may go away because mm-hmm. the body gets sort of used to the status quo but mm-hmm. it manifests in other ways. Mm-hmm. So you and your team, as you study those regions and, and you discern, well, these people are, are not only food insecure, but they're, they're on the path to, to death if they don't get nutrition. Mm-hmm. So explain, explain to me this. Here's an example. The right. first time you witnessed that personally, what did, what did that do to you? I'm going to go on a, on a riff here. You know, I, I'm seeing food, and let's be clear. So you have hunger, that definition of hunger, and then you have something called food insecurity. And so food insecurity, again, defined by, by FAO is, is when a person lacks regular access mm-hmm. to enough safe and nutritious food for normal growth and development in an active and healthy life. Mm-hmm. I've seen both hunger as well as food insecurity in the US. Like that's where I first saw it, right? And we see it and it's being addressed through WIC, we're seeing it and it's addressed through food, snap, uh, food stamps, SNAP. Like those programs are, were my first introduction domestically. Um, and it plays with you, right? Mm-hmm. It plays with you because you realize just how much you have and how little someone else might have, right? Looking at this more globally, the first time I saw it, you know, was probably, uh, at least in my in my professional career, was when I went to South Sudan, right? So I was in Juba, uh, which is now the capital, Rumbek, which at that time was uh, was the was the, was the was the formal capital, and you see people who are hungry, who are food insecure, and how do you reconcile that with the fact that I'm going back to an office that's air conditioned, has water? Uh, how do I reconcile that with the fact that I'm going to be staying in a guest house where I'm going to have enough food to eat? I can choose what to eat. And so it's difficult and it continues to be difficult to reconcile that. And so the way I do that though is, is by making every effort 
to assist as many people as possible, whether it's through developing policies, whether it's through participating in, 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 in channels like these, um, donating time and money, right? I tried, I tried to do those things. Okay. Um, to our listening audience, we are speaking with uh, Rashad Nams, and uh, who is with World uh, Food, uh, the international executive uh, uh, who has been a strategic advisor in the UN. Uh, Rashad, um, I visited family in Trinidad and I saw children underneath a bridge who were hungry. And I decided to take some kids. Uh, I just randomly picked out kids and said, let me take you to lunch. And these kids ate half of their food. And I wondered why. And I asked us, why aren't you eating all of it? They were going to take half back to feed other kids. Mm -hmm. And I said, go ahead and eat that. And I'll buy more sandwiches to take back. That's when I first saw true hunger. Mm -hmm. And I thought the people here in the U.S. who say they're hungry, mm -hmm. I thought they don't really know what true, what hunger is. Mm -hmm. When I saw that, mm -hmm. and then you're telling me what you've seen in Sudan and probably other places are worse than that even. When, when you speak of food insecurity, mm -hmm. in my mind, I'm, I'm not seeing true hunger. I'm thinking they're missing a meal or two. Mm. But then when I see those images of swollen bellies, mm. I, I think food insecurity, that word just doesn't fit. Mm. You, you understand what I'm saying? Tell me, tell me more. Where to put it? Yeah, it just, it, it, that's starvation. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily insecurity. It, I just can't wrap my mind around that. And maybe our listening audience is not able to wrap their head around that either when you say insecurity versus starvation. Uh, on the spectrum, perhaps. Right. Is starvation, of course, I would think, is, is on the far end. And then right. maybe the food insecurity, miss a meal or two or three, but then mm -hmm. you get something which may not yet be nutritious, but can fill mm -hmm. your belly. Right. To the whole extreme, you go to starvation and and in peril of death mm. um if that continues mm. but uh, I, I i see exactly what you're saying Liz. i really do it's um it we don't know people have used this, this metrics that in america we are more wealthier than two-thirds of the world or something mm. and i'm probably slaughtering the statistic but mm. it makes you stop and think that maybe those who are really struggling are yet two-thirds better off that, I mean, better off than two thirds of the world, so. Well, I think that the key here is, is to recognize that there is enough food produced throughout the world to feed everyone. There is, I mean, that's just a fact, it's a statistical fact, right? There mm -hmm. is enough food. The challenge is, is how do you provide equitable access, right? Mm -hmm. That's the real challenge. And so I'll give an example. So let's say that you're producing, you know, enough food in, in it could be Trinidad, it could be Zambia, it could be uh, Malawi, it could be any country, right? But there are challenges associated, for instance, with logistics. What if you have a high amount of food that you're producing, but you're not able to put it on trucks or put it on vehicles and transport it in time before it spoils? 
So it's not a matter of, of production because you have a production, but now it's a matter of access through transport, right? Well, let's say from point A to point B, but all of a sudden you don't have the store, you don't have the facilities. That again is, 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 is a matter of logistics. Another one might be, um, you might have a government that is producing enough food that has the storage facilities, um, but don't necessarily have strong safety nets. So all of a sudden the question becomes, how do you distribute that food, right? In a way in which it is cheap or widely accessible, right? So we take it for granted that we have SNAP, that we have school feeding programs, but many countries don't necessarily have that or don't have the extensive umbrella or the reach that we have, right? So you have all these different components that contribute to food security, which could exacerbate hunger, which could lead to potential starvation, right? Or if you take a look at what's happening with Ukraine, I mean, that's a wonderful, a wonderful example or anecdote because Ukraine is probably, if not the largest or is at least in the top three producers of wheat, right? So when that crisis started happening, all of a sudden you, you lost that major producer. So the question then becomes, where do organizations like the World Food Program or where do governments go to, to make up for that, for that loss? So all of a sudden the prices are skyrocketing. And so the question then becomes who can afford it, right? And so that's why you see those negotiations between uh, the US and, uh, the, and other governments as well as the United Nations with Ukraine and with the Russians around how can we create a corridor in, in which there's neutrality? We can you know, move items from Ukraine to operations where you're providing food and food assistance. That's why it's so critical. So the whole point is, is that it's a lot more complicated and a lot more nuanced. I think people give the credit for when it comes to food security, hunger, uh, acute malnutrition and, and the whole my question is, in the U.S., can you identify who has uh, food insecurities? Because you mentioned that earlier. So right now, if you were going to identify states that have insecurities, where would that be? I think USDA would be the institution I would go to to find that information, uh -huh. uh, as well as um, a state's uh, agriculture and uh, agriculture production uh, uh, office. Um, I would probably also look at their uh, Department of Education, right? Those uh -huh. are the places. If you're asking me for a specific state, you know, it really varies, right? It really does. I, I don't know enough about the domestic front. Okay. Uh, I have my guesses, but I don't think they're quite accurate. Okay. All righty. Well, I would, I would say that states oftentimes identify themselves as uh, you know, we use phrases like the poorest state in America, and mm -hmm. there's one that I'm thinking of right now, um, but yet it's sort of an agricultural-based state, mm -hmm. but yet they contend that they're the poorest, but in other, other areas, they're, they're probably lagging way behind. Mm -hmm. And education, I think you hit, hit on the head on a, on a very good way, education. Mm -hmm. um, that is a component part of, of how someone's going to live their life, whether or not they're going to be... Um, impoverished or they're going to break some barriers i mean there there's some historical trends that can be broken by good education i mean we're mm -hmm. all living proof of that sitting here tonight yeah so i um well, well clarence let me also say this though, right i think we also need to recognize that part of the challenge also is it can often be cheaper to go out to mcdonald's and get a number one or a number two whatever the value meal is and i get my french fries 
my hamburger, my chicken nuggets, and my drink, right? Versus taking the time to go to the grocery store, pick up the food, which is going to cost the money, and then making time to prepare it, right? So there also needs to be recognition that it's not it's not just a matter of access, but it's also a matter of, of time. Right. It's also a matter of the education. So how do you tell a person, you know, you can take 15 minutes to prepare a very nutritious meal and it will cost you $10 or less. Mm-hmm. Right. How do you, so there needs to be a better job, I would argue, heard from a personal perspective on right. how we market this. Right? People will pay for what they want, but you, you also have to market it in a way that it appeals to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I'll share with you is, is that I coordinate a farmer's market here in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, part of our mission is to address uh, issues such as food insecurity mm-hmm. and food deserts uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's just the distance it takes to get to a grocery store or a food mart. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right um, for what it takes to get that number one or two or the deluxe supersized whatever. <laughs> you could spend the time and strategically buy some of the best produce mm-hmm. in this area. And I, and I know two individuals we talked about earlier who routinely visit uh, this particular <laughs> farmer's market. So I'm not going to call them out. I just haven't seen them in a while. So you might want to tell them, you know, get over to this farmer's market. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it, you're right. The value of good nutritious food that's less than 50 miles or maybe at the most 75 miles away versus something where you're going to pay top dollar for them to keep it looking uh, healthy enough for weeks on end until you mm-hmm. consume it versus mm-hmm. going to the fast food store and getting all the starch, all the sodium, mm-hmm. all the grease, mm-hmm. yeah. all the MSG, all mm-hmm. the things that really addict you to keep going back. It's usually the taste that drives you back. So yeah, there's something to be said about that. Um, one of the functions of the United Nations World Food Program has to be educating people on just this very topic, how to wisely shop and use their buying power to to buy good food. Uh, are you part of that initiative in, in your work with the uh, WFP? I'm not part of the initiative. And I think that it's important to distinguish between educating the general public, right? On their right. consumer consumption habits, which mm-hmm. we don't we do not do as mm-hmm. a nation's world food program versus for instance, through our cash and voucher program. Let's say that you're a Syrian refugee who's uh, living in uh, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, or, or Egypt, right? Instead of us bringing food in, we've created in collaboration with, with other partners, a debit card. And that debit card may provide, let's say $200 for a family of five. And because the food is already in the market, we say to that family or the head of household, use that credit, that debit card with that, with that money and go and purchase food from the market. Hmm. What we've done though, is you know I, to identify, let's say a list of ten to twelve items that hit the nutritional targets, right? That are pretty consistent with the cultural norms of the Syrian refugee or or uh, uh, Rohingya refugee if you're coming from from Myanmar into Bangladesh, or, or if you're an IDP and Sub-Saharan Africa. In other words, we are making sure that they're getting nutritious food that's also consistent with their cultural norms, what they've eaten in their past. Um, while also contributing to the local economy, right? And so as we evaluate, you know, what are the most appropriate items, we're making sure that, for instance, we're teaching people how to prepare that food, right? 
we're advising them on how much to consume. Uh, we might talk about uh, you know, how to consume, right? But that's to the the beneficiaries of the food assistance and not necessarily the general public. I'm gonna ask you to repeat that last statement. Uh, there was just a little breakage in your audio, but if you could, you said that you were teaching them how to prepare the food and then you listed a couple other things with that. Yeah, so prepare the food, how to conserve the food. Uh, it might include, um, you know, how much should be, how much should the child consume, right? Um, you know, is there a significant difference between what a six-year-old eats and a, and a two-year-old? Yeah, there is. Well, how do you go about educating that person? Because they may or may, may or may have not have access to the education prior to them receiving food assistance for the World Food Program. And, and, and you teach people in America this, right? We don't. We don't. We don't. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you start teaching people in America this? <laughs> yes, we can, Clarence. I'm not going to lie. You know, um, but, you know, I, I think it's also important to recognize that you can educate people as much as you want to. Yeah. At the end of the day, people are going to do what they want to do. I think if, you know, if we're talking about from a domestic U.S. perspective, again, I'm speaking from a personal always but no i think that we really need to look at how can we incorporate a lot of the behavior change behavior science behavior economics principles in order to encourage people to consume healthier foods right so i'll give an example um the next time you go to a grocery store whether it's kroger's if you're in bloomington or another part of indiana or if you are in I don't know, marshes, up if you're up in Indianapolis, wherever you are. Pay attention to where they place different items. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. That is a reflection of behavior science, behavior economics. Yeah. The things that they want you to buy, they put it at eye level. Yeah. The things that they don't necessarily want you to buy, they put them at the bottom or they put them at a higher level. Yeah. Or if you're a parent, and you have a child and you're going through the line and you just want them to stop crying or stop yelling, most likely you're going to pick up that candy bar. That candy bar is going to be located near the cash register. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's no fruit there. There's yeah. no healthy food there. Yeah. So again, how can you leverage those principles in order to encourage people to consume healthier food? That to me is, is the future. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that. I also noticed, uh, Rashad, uh, I pay attention to the dates. I know they're going to put the things that are going to expire to the front. And so the fresher items will be in the back. Exactly. So uh, because they want to get rid of those things that are about ready to expire. So exactly. you get to pay attention to that. So you're, it is about science. And they paid attention to how to where to place things in the store. 100%. And it's all about trying to get your money, um, especially here in America, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's about marketing and getting your dollars yeah. and not necessarily what's going to, what's benefiting you right. and your health. It's exactly. not about that. When it's, you are dealing with food insecurity in the other countries, are you dealing with politics in the other countries? And how do you get past that to help people? We are, we are, it, it, you know, like anything, like like uh, like the U.S., like Canada, like Japan, like uh, other Western nations, other Southeast Asians or whatnot. Yes, right. 
And an example of that might be, for instance, when I was uh, when I was working in, in a rural part of uh, Zambia, as a, uh, a, a political official come up to me and say, you know, essentially, we have hunger here. And I said, well, the, the studies don't back that up. And so they persisted. And they said, well, listen, essentially, I'm running for office. Mm. So I can make this a headache for you unless you accommodate or you fulfill my needs. And I, I couldn't do that. And so it became, you know, an issue in the radio. And so, you know, uh, my office in Lusaka in the capital dealt with it. So there are, you are going to have those government pressures, right? Um, but at the end of the day, we have a, a set of internal processes and exercises and guidelines that help to minimize or to ameliorate or mitigate mm-hmm. those, those things from happening. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Are, 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 are there ways that you see food used as a leverage or... Yeah. Um, food used to create conflict or even unrest or keeping people in a fearful state or subjugated state. Have you seen examples of that? And if so, then how does the UN um, work around that? Because the need is still there. It's very Mm -hmm. loud and you Mm -hmm. don't ignore it, Mm -hmm. but yet you got these impediments. So so what do you do? I mean, uh, sort of building on uh, Liz's conversation there, what do you do in this situation? Well, I think that a, a, a recent example of that is what's happening in Haiti. So you have a government that is, is, is not as stable as I think the international community would like. Okay. And so it leaves it susceptible to whether it's internal or external pressures, right? And what's, what you're seeing is, is um, for a variety of reasons and different variables, what you're seeing is an increase in food insecurity, right? And so I think it was maybe two weeks ago, maybe two and a half weeks ago, you started to see, we saw looting of WFP's facilities, right? Where we store our food. And it wasn't the government who was doing that. It was, you know, members of the general public, it were, you know, individuals who are associated with, with criminal factions and whatnot, right? That's how food can be weaponized, one way that food can be weaponized when there's just a lack of it. And so right. people go through any kind of extremes in order to secure it, mm-hmm. right? And my fear is, is that, again, personally, personal perspective, is that we could see more of that as you see food prices to continue, continue to increase inflation you know, continue to rise, mm-hmm. and a lack of access to that nutritional food, equitable access to nutritional food. Because again, the food might be there, but are you providing, or do you have the mechanisms and policies in place to ensure that is widely distributed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Rashad, that, that does make sense. And it does make sense as you can see, it, it would be problematic in the future as prices rise, especially at, after COVID, we've seen everything rise and we're not salaries and stuff is not making up for that mm-hmm. and i could see people using that as a weapon mm-hmm. i would say and, and not only in other countries i could see that could possibly happen here yeah i mean the question becomes is and it happens a choice that i think far too millions of people every day have to make this choice do i purchase food do i pay my electricity do i buy my kids clothes 
if I do buy food, do I buy it just for my kids? Do I buy some, how do I do it? Right, that is the real problem. And in here in Bloomington, how do I pay rent? Exactly. Affordable housing. And then I, I hear, I went to something yesterday called Elect Connect, and they were talking about affordable housing. Well, what is affordable housing? What is affordable food? Yep. And no, I haven't gotten an answer to that yet. <laughs> I understand. I understand. I appreciate to convert it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you had mentioned something uh, during the Rotary meeting that I found interesting. You were talking about an experience you had. Mm -hmm. um, and let's see if I can get this straight. You you got up to go to a prayer or something with a friend that they said that you could either sleep in or participate in a prayer in some country you were in. And you said it was a life-changing experience. Uh, yeah, so Pakistan. I was in Islamabad. Yes, I'd like to hear that again. I found that interesting. Yeah. So I was in Islamabad uh, as a government donor relations officer. So World Food Program. Uh, we're primarily, I'd say 93.5, almost 94% funded by government funds, right? The remainder comes from either corporate or individual donations. And so my job at that moment in time was to, we were, there was an emergency flood response taking place in Islamabad, in Pakistan, throughout the nation. And so my job was to go to Islamabad in the capital and to liaise and work with our different UN agencies, uh, international NGO partners, uh, to 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 fundraise funds from, uh, from from the governments, whether they're the U.S., Canada, Japan, China, uh, as well as the Pakistani government itself. And while I was there, I stayed at a guest house, and uh, it happened to be right before Ramadan. Mm -hmm. I knew of Ramadan, but I didn't really know Ramadan. And uh, I'm a Christian by faith, and um, and so the night before Ramadan, I'm in my room. And the owner and the chef walk in. They say, Rashad, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. And they say, um, you know, what would you like to eat tomorrow? And I said, well, the usual, you know, a lassi, which is like a milk-based drink, yogurt-based uh, drink. It either be sweet or it could be salty. Uh, two eggs, sunny side up, and some toast. That's it. The usual. He said, okay. <laughs> and so they said, uh, what time do you want it? Said, well, you know, I need to be on the bus by let's say 7:30, 7:45. So let's say seven o'clock. Well, Rashad, you know, Ramadan is tomorrow. And I said, yeah. And the light bulb clicked. Right. Um, my full name is Rashad Zaki now. And so that's an Arabic name that's often you know used in, in, in Islam. Mm -hmm. And so I hadn't told them I'm Christian. And so I had a choice to make on the spot. Do I just say, I'm not Muslim. Um, let's just still do seven o'clock and let's be done with it, halas. Or do I participate? And so I participated. And I said, okay, what time do you suggest I get up? And they said, you know, when to say one o'clock, maybe three o'clock, four o'clock. Okay, let's do that. And so for 23 days, I got up around three o'clock in the morning. I had my breakfast, I would go back to sleep. And I continued to fast throughout the day. Just went ahead and practiced and, and did Ramadan for those 23 days. Uh, I had my iftar with other colleagues at the office. 
you know, we had our dates to break the fast and we would have pizza and stuff like that. And, um, and so along the way, one afternoon uh, at the guest house, one of the drivers said, you know, would you like to go to the Blue Mosque? And so the Blue Mosque is this beautiful mosque on the hill, one of the major hills in Islamabad. And I had never been to a mosque before. Um, and I said, yeah, let's go. Again, I didn't know what to expect. So we go. And, um, and so I'm just following him. Right, we go into the bathroom in this huge white tile, you know, different stalls. And so I see him take off his shoes, I take off my shoes. I see him take off his socks, he takes off his socks. I do the same. Washes his hands with soap, I do the same. Hands, face, everything, I do the same. And then we go inside the mosque. And it is just beautiful. It's just beautiful. And, you know, I'm watching people pray. And so I, I, I do the same. I just pray. And I uh, get back up, we go back to the bathroom and we put on our shoes and everything. And he was like, what'd you think? I said, it's amazing. And the point of the story is, is that it really made a huge imprint upon my life. Mm-hmm. I always knew that Islam was a peaceful religion, right? This, despite the, 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 the negative connotations in the, in the press and the Western media in particular. But to see it and to experience up close, not just at the mosque, but throughout the 23 days of Ramadan, to share and to participate in this experience was, was second to none. So that's one thing. What also made it special, and I think I've built upon it subsequently, is the fact that what makes you global isn't necessarily your travels. Right? It's that openness and willingness to embrace and to be the other. That's what I think makes you global. And I think that's what people don't necessarily appreciate, right? Because in order to be the other, it means to challenge your long-held beliefs and your traditions and your customs. It forces you to reevaluate them. And it also forces you to see and experience things from a different perspective, which as African-Americans, I think we're accustomed to. That's just the way it goes, yeah. right? Globally, in the international community though, all of a sudden you're having, I've had to juxtapose being African-American, male, Christian, in the Muslim world, the Muslim practice, predominantly Muslim country, right? And so how do you, you know, because people are like, you're American, but you're African-American, so you're just, how do you do that? How do you balance all that while also working with and leading a multinational team? When I say multinational, for instance, in Bangladesh, I had a French guy, I had a half Italian, half Dutch man, I had a Bangladeshi woman, I had an Indian woman, right? And you would think, well, it's just simple. You just tell them what to do. No, there are certain ways that people respond based on their culture, based on their gender, based on their background, all right. of them. So you're having to navigate this while also being cognizant of your own race, your own ethnicity, your own nationality. That's what being global to me is all about. I am so glad. Thank you so much for, for sharing that because I, I that stuck with me when you mentioned that at the Rotary Club and my husband and I uh, just in a few months are on our way to Istanbul, Turkey. Okay. And I want to see the blue moss there as well as other things. And I take that into consideration when we have traveled, p- people are really interested in us because the first thing out of their mouths is, 
you're African-American, aren't you? And they have so many questions for African-Americans. Yeah. Uh, and one of them is, uh, how is it that you love a country that don't love you? I don't know if you get asked that, but yeah. we get asked that all the time. Yeah. Everywhere we go. Yeah. How is it? How do you feel being an African-American right. in America? Yeah. You know they don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> I go, well, I'm going back home. <laughs> exactly. And that's yeah. The yeah. And, and yeah. Liz, it's, it's, it's something that I've thought about a lot over the past 18 years, right? Because the way I look at race, yes. racism and discrimination has really changed, right? I'm not quite as rigid. And when I say rigid, what I mean is I recognize that my, my experience is not necessarily the same as yours, that there are nuances and complexities associated with racism and discrimination, right? Walking into a store, I always know this, but particularly Clarence, I know you know this, Walking into the store, I'm cognizant of what I'm wearing. I'm cognizant that I'm not gonna put my hands in my pocket. I, my father's already given me the talk since I was 10 or 11 years old. I know him, right? However, that's gonna be totally different for a black woman, mm -hmm. right? All of a sudden, she's probably worried about how, not just what she's wearing, how her hair is. She's worried about how she's speaking. She's worried about if she's gonna be quote unquote too emotional, right? And how she's gonna have how measured she has to be, right? And so I was aware, but I didn't necessarily appreciate those kind of nuances, right? Or I presumed pre prior to working with the UN that, you know, all black people face discrimination. No, I know friends who are from Kenya, again, 90 something percent black country who only faced or engaged or experienced racism for the first time when they came to Europe. Yeah. And it was still foreign for them. And so all of a sudden it made me think, huh, how do I, how do I redefine that? How do I create a definition that's wide enough or encompassing enough to reflect that, right? Or when, they come, when a person comes from the US, all of a sudden I'm thinking about, you know, that distinction between being Malayan versus African-American versus Trinidadian versus uh, Bahamian. Right, we don't, yes, we have the same skin color, but we don't necessarily share the same experiences. So does racism, yes, it affects us all, but do people see it that way? So again, how do you account for that? That's what I've been grappling with. And so in your experience dealing with food insecurities, mm -hmm. when you're in these various countries, even the black countries, mm -hmm. does that affect you too? Do they see you? differently or as one of them when you're in Sudan for mm -hmm. instance do they see you as an American or do, or just as another black person they see me as American first and foremost so right. do they address you do they say well you've picked up white ways and see you like that or is it is there a difference no do I don't they, think they treat you differently no, I don't think it's ever been an explicit difference in treatment or anything that anyone said. I think that what happens is, is that on some level, again, depends on the country and the country as well as the continent. I think people probably see me first as American 
And so that's one piece. Okay. Then they say you're black. And then the question becomes, are you black, black? In other words, were you born and raised in the US? Or did you people, do you know, did, did you people come from West Africa? Because your nose, it gives me the indication that you might be from Senegal or Cote d'Ivoire, right? And then based on my response, they may say, well, yeah, you're really American, right? <laughs> that may then beg questions or prompt questions such as, what is it like to live there? Or, you know, what do you think of the political situation there? Or et cetera, et cetera. So, et cetera. so yeah. there's this process, right? What I've also noticed is that you know, in some parts, particularly in Southern Africa, there is a word for for, uh, for foreigners, or I say white foreigners in, partic in particular, Mzungu, right? And so I'm not, I've never been called a Mzungu, right? But they also see me as different, right? And there's, there's no word that captures that for many people, right? So it is fascinating. It's really fascinating. Okay. Clarence? Well, well, for our listeners who joined in and they're probably saying, hmm, this is the most interesting conversation I've, had, <laughs> I've heard in, in three weeks. You've just heard uh, our, our own uh, Liz Mitchell engaging uh, with Rashad Nelms, who's an international executive who has extensive work with the United Nations World Food Program. And in his own right, he's at, advising as an executive in residence at Indiana University. I have a question regarding, uh, you go into conflict areas uh, to bring assistance because one of the unfortunate results of conflict is, is that there is, uh, there are those that suffer both, um, uh, the humanitarian suffering does include hunger. Mm -hmm. So in helping them, have you ever found yourself in a hot spot and, and also in a hot situation where you had to use your wits uh, to sort of get out of that situation? Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> there have been moments, there's been one instance, for instance, for example, when I was in South Sudan, where uh, we were doing a tour of, the, of a, I think it was an IDP camp, IDP camp, internally displaced person camp or people camp. And uh, it was done in coordination, I think, with UNICEF and, and maybe, uh, I can't remember another UN agency that may have been involved. But the point is, is that I was left, right? And so I had to figure out, and the point is to start pouring rain, right? how to get back to base, right? all by myself, no radio, no cell phone, just a book bag, a pair of blue jeans. I'm probably wearing like the ones I have on now and a t-shirt, right? A college shirt. And, you know, I, at first you start to freak out. It's like, I don't know where I'm going. Of course you ask questions and the time passes and you just kind of have to keep cool, right? And eventually I found it and they was like, oh, we didn't know you were gone. I said, well, there's a problem here. You know, there's a failure to communicate here, right? Um, um, in other instances, you know, there, there have been occasions where I know there's a desire for some kind of drive, right? No. And that happens both in my personal travel as well as in my professional, professional work. And the question is, do you want to acquiesce or not? I, I don't. Right, and I'll deal with the fallout, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas others might, right? Yeah. And I think that what happens, the reason why I feel so confident doing that, taking that approach, that route is A, because that's what we're supposed to do in the United Nations. Mm -hmm. right. And then B, um, I, I feel confident enough that I can handle it, right? But again, it goes back to what we mentioned earlier. I'm also a man. I think I'm in pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. um, I've also worked and traveled abroad for 18 years, so I know 
how the how the how how this all this game plays out. Um, I'm American, so I know if, if anything hits the fan, America got my back, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to respond differently, perhaps than Liz. You might, right? It also depends on the context and the operational context. Yeah. Right. Like maybe you're going to pay that bribe because you know that there's a chance of you potentially being raped or some other form of sexual based violence taking place. Yeah. Right. So again, it's there are these nuances and complexities that we need to kind of tease out when, we, when we're having those conversations. Yeah, yeah. The, I always find it really interesting. Uh, people always ask my husband, well, what are you? I've been looking at you and I can't figure out what are you? Yeah. And so, <laughs> and Jim likes to tease and he goes, I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> exactly. And what's yeah. interesting about that question that they pose to your husband is, is people then use that to inform how they're going to respond and how they're going to engage us. Absolutely. And, and some of them wait on an answer and he stares back and they're staring at him and it's, and it's like, you're not going to answer me, boy? Yeah. Without saying it, but that's what I pick up. Yeah. I asked you a question and you're not going to answer me, boy. And he yeah. doesn't. He just said, you know, he, he makes that response and then he doesn't say anything. And I'm watching. Hmm. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's really interesting. It, it, it's called it's called restraint. Um, yeah. Now, now with 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 about two minutes. Wow, about two minutes left. I'd say about three minutes left. And sure. one thing that I did want to get to, uh, which is when we initially had a conversation before we set this interview up, you are so interested in, in recruiting uh, yes. that yes. next generation. Yes. Okay, what do people, they've heard this interview and they're interested. They're, I would say, what's the age that they need to kind of act upon? I mean, at what point is it maybe little bit too late but it was the prime age and how do you go about getting to where you are now so and thank you clarence and liz for 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 having me let me just start there right and i'm glad you posed that question because i think it depends on where you are one of the most important things that i encourage particularly african-american and latinx parents and families to do is to start getting their kids to learn a foreign language as soon as possible, mm-hmm. right? I work with, I'm fortunate, I speak Spanish and, and, and Italian, right? Many of my colleagues speak at least three languages, wow. fluently, fluently, right? And they had the benefit of learning those languages at a very young age. Right. Okay. So it is yes. incumbent upon parents, particularly of African-American and Latinx families, Okay. Learn a second, if not a third language. Right? Okay. That's where we're going. That's going to make them a much more, a much stronger candidate for higher education in the future as well as employment. So that's number one. The second piece is to, again, take advantage of the opportunities to engage with different cultures. If there's a local community college, go there, participate in arts, participate in in movies or foreign films, participate in local lectures. If you're at a larger tier one research institution, whether it's Howard, whether it's Grambling, whether it's Indiana University, do the same, right? Yeah. So that's the second thing. Because what we're trying to do at that young age, and again, two, three, up until 10, 11 years old, we're trying to inculcate that child so that they become more familiar and comfortable with the other. So that's the same. Yeah. 
The third one is if you're already in high school, even if you're in middle school, participate in things like the Model United Nations. Right. Right? And so those are, are, are events that are convened all in different parts of the world where you can actually be represent a government and you're meeting with other kids either in your school or in your school district or across the country, the world, and you're, you're, you're talking about some of the issues that I'm working on, that my colleagues are working on. So that's another one, that's a tip. Sticking with that, that middle and high school, I would also encourage them to think about whether it's a study abroad or it's some kind of leap year, if you can afford it, if you can't afford it, search for scholarships. Mm -hmm. That would be the, 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 the fourth piece. And then the final piece for those who are already in college, I would encourage you to take a leap year, take a semester, study abroad, something like that. So those would be my four or five uh, suggestions. And, and okay. well put. And we're gonna let that be the, the final remark. Uh, we do want to thank International Executive Rashad Nelms for joining us to discuss his involvement with the United Nations World Food Program. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On's executive producer is Clarence Boone, yours truly. Tonight's assistant producer is Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB News Department director is Kate Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.